Welcome to the Persisters Can podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Lubowitz. Today's certified persister is Anna Borderloose. Anna grew up in Burlington, Ontario, in a family with progressive values and a strong social justice streak. She first got involved in politics as a child making phone calls for her neighbor as he ran for local office. She began her career at a major appliance manufacturing corporation, which led her to beginning her own business as she started her family. Ahead of the 2011 provincial election in Ontario, Anna became the riding fundraising facilitator for the Ontario Liberal Party, supporting the fundraising efforts of local riding associations, while also volunteering her time supporting the fundraising efforts of the Ontario Women's Liberal Commission. Anna joins us today to talk about how she got involved in politics, what it takes to fundraise at the local level, and how we can encourage more women to get involved in civic life. Thanks for joining me, Anna. Oh, nice to be here, Teresa. You started off your career actually not in politics. You started working as a manager for environment, health, and safety of a major appliance manufacturing corporation, which is something that you still dabble in now as an instructor. Um, But you also got into consulting. Can you talk a bit about your career before politics? I really had intended on becoming a doctor. That was what I was aiming for. Uh, I applied to a bunch of universities, ended up at McMaster. They gave me the most, so I went to McMaster. (laughs) And, You know, I ended up taking natural science and then specialized in chemistry. I got an honors chemistry degree. You know, every year I'd sit and I'd I'd look at the applications for med school and I was a pretty good student, so I thought I had a good chance of getting in. But, you know, at that time, I'd already spoken to our family doctor and, you know, his life was pretty darn full. He had 5,000 patients. He, you know, had a lot, a lot going on. And I, I had a hard time as a woman who wanted a family and wanted a a broader life. Um, I wanted employment, but I wanted a broader life. So anyway, um, I ended up in chemistry, but knew I didn't really want to be a researcher. I'd done some of that. I'd had some summer research awards and I'd done a lot of research in a dark lab by myself (laughs) and I needed more people. (laughs) So I was actually at a party one night and, uh, I was bemoaning the fact I didn't know what the heck I was going to do with my life. And this guy says to me, you know what you need to do? You need to become an industrial hygienist. And I said, what is that? that?" (laughs) Right. And he said, no, no, health and safety and environmental protection in the workplace. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And so ultimately that led to a little bit of, I I had to sort of do some digging to find out um, where do I go to be one of these people and what kind of background do I need? And I ended up taking the Masters of Health Science program at the University of Toronto. It was in the Faculty of Medicine then, and it was um, in Occupational and Environmental Health. And so I took this program and it was a year and a half master's degree. And that's actually where I met Helena Jasek, which I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, um, who's currently the MP of Markham Stovall and the Minister of Federal Economic Development for Southern Ontario right. now. After getting that degree, um, we had to do a work term. They called it a practicum. And I did mine with General Electric. That meant that I was out there and GE had a lot of businesses at the time, maybe 10. And so what happened was um, after I got my degree, GE hired me. And then what happened was... Um, Uh, the guy who was the HR manager at appliances, he said to me one day, well, you know, we just need a full-time person. Can you write a job description for something called a manager of industrial hygiene and safety? I ended up down working at the appliance division in Hamilton. It was workers and employers and management working together to try to make the workplace safer 
and to try to make the environment safer. And um, we spent a lot of years making um, big progress there. And so that, that was the career that I had. So how did you make that transition into consulting then from there? Well, what happened was that I had a, a full-time career and um, I started to have a family. And so it became uh, a day a week, two days a week, three days a week, whatever it was. And so very um, progressive for the time. It too. was really progressive. And GE was very progressive at the time. Uh, and um, although this was the Camco side. So at the time, I, um, of course, I went off on maternity and then I came back part time and I worked part time for quite a number of years um, and still doing that senior role part time, um, two, three days a week, which really allowed me to be the mom I wanted to be but also um, have and continue and maintain a high level career. And it was, it was great. And then what happened was that um, I had a third child and then the babysitting bingo began. It became extremely difficult for me to manage. I was traveling quite a bit, traveling to Kentucky, traveling to Montreal, and the babysitting became very haphazard um, and not suitable. And so I realized that I was going to have to make a difficult decision and in transition. And so I moved into sort of starting my own business. I had a little wellness business. I had also, I had started teaching for the university at the time. I had started a safety program there in that occupational health division that I had uh, learned in. The transition to to consulting kind of started right there. So GE, I did some consulting for GE initially. And then I had um, some wellness things that I was doing as well, and then did the teaching and continue to do teaching and, um, and then picked up a variety of consulting from there. So you've been doing that ever since. And at some point along the way, you made your way into politics. What was the sort of first spark for that? And how did you first get involved? <laughs> well, you know, I want to take you back to Burlington because my first little dip into politics was the people who lived across the street from us were Tom and Fran Sutherland. And Tom was the local alderman in Burlington. And so my sister and I used to go over there and we would help them out with their babysitting. From the time we were like 10, 11, we got engaged in his, we would have been like 11 and 12 maybe, okay? And we were working in his campaign office on Brant Street, if you can imagine. <laughs> and I remember being on the phones calling for Tom Sutherland. It was it was sort of my first little foray into the political world. My sister that's was a, young a really that's a really great phone banking strategy is to put cute kids on the phone so no one hangs <laughs> up on them. <laughs> it was it was hilarious. Um, you know, and um, my sister she was a young liberal, and so she actually met Pierre, and um, so she she did that through high school. But I really had no mm, no inklings of politics, although you know I was really involved in community, in church, in cadets, in, you know, and I always sort of right. sought to try to make things a better place wherever I was working. So fast forward to how I kind of got involved in politics. And um, I'm going to go back to Helena because what so. happened was <laughs> Helena and I met doing our master's at U of T. She was in the public health division. I was in the occupational environmental health. Okay. But the, the, the master's degree was the same masters and we had shared courses. So we used to have this little place called, uh, thank God it's Thursdays, little get together. And so I met Helena there one night and she was telling me she was living in, in Windsor and she was had to get her masters so that she could become a medical officer of health. Cause she was making a transition from being a family physician 
to a medical officer of health to be easier for her family as well. And so what happened was she was bemoaning the fact she was living with her parents. She was in her thirties. And uh, I said, oh, I have an opening in our graduate residence because there were six of us living in this place. Um, so Helena became my roommate. Our lives intersected. She went to York Region. She became the medical officer of health, the commissioner of health services. I went to GE, had a career there. Our lives intersected back and forth. Fast forward to Helena's 50th birthday party. This is just after Walkerton has happened. Okay, 2,000 people have gotten sick, six people have died. But she said, you know, someone should do something about it. And um, we said, Helena, you need to get into politics. And she said, uh, well, only if you guys will support me. And so that's how it began. It was like a group of three, Helena, myself, and Lynette Flanagan, and uh, the three mighty women trying to get Helena first nominated in York North. But I mean, again, Helena had a professional career municipally. I had a prof and and in healthcare, I had a professional career in GE. But neither one of us had any kind of political expertise at all. Okay, now Lynette did. Thank God for Lynette because she'd done campaigns and canvassing, etc. So we started out trying to get Helena nominated where she lived, which was York North. And at the time, we were running against John Taylor, and you know he he, he was the son of the the mayor at the time, another great candidate. And, you know, listen, we did our best coffee parties all over the riding and driving around. I mean, this is what it's like. So you're getting people to sign up. So we were kind of learning on the fly and it became a very apparent that, you know, while we had done fairly well, we probably weren't going to win. At the same time, Helena got a call from the neighboring riding, which was Oak Ridges, and they had no candidate. And so they said to Helena, why are you guys fighting it out? Like, we need a good candidate. Why, why are we fighting it out when, you know, we need a good person. We'd love to have you come and, you know, maybe be our candidate. So um, ultimately we ended up over in Oak Ridges. We met John Lawler and Debbie Makarenko and, and their whole team started the process of trying to build that riding association. They had a riding association to, to build that up and to get prepared for a campaign. And we ran in 2003 and we lost by a relatively small margin to Frank Cleese, who was a uh, cabinet minister at the time, about 2,500 votes or so. Anyway, um, that set me off on sort of uh, the political campaign of trying to get great women elected. The lead up to the 2011 election, which was the McGinty uh, team's third go at the can there, they were trying to win their third straight majority, which is something that, you know, hadn't happened since the late 1800s, like the 1890s, um, under Oliver Mowat. So this was like a very rare occurrence that they were trying to achieve here. And so part of achieving that was shoring up riding associations and supporting them in their election efforts. And that's when you took on the role as riding fundraising facilitator to help over 100 local riding associations, PLAs, provincial liberal associations, to raise enough money to run competitive campaigns and then win on mm -hmm. election day. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about your day-to-day -day work, what it looked like in that role? I mean, I'm just gonna take a little step back because I want people to sort of understand my progression, just, just in terms of uh, the help that I helped Elena. So when we were getting ready for her first campaign, okay, clearly we needed to get her nominated, but we had to, um, develop a team, get the people and get the money. And so um, I worked on both sides of trying to um, develop the team. So that meant develop the writing team initially and then developing a campaign team. And most of the subsequent campaigns, I had the job 
of being the volunteer chair, the volunteer coordinator. It's not the only thing that I did. I did comms, I did other things. Um, but, but primarily the people were kind of my responsibility. In addition, between elections, so for example, that first election in 2003, we, did, we didn't go in fully funded. In fact, Helena had to take a loan. When you have a big loan, big enough, that had to be personally and, you know, you have to uh, put other things up against it and this and that. Um, we learned very quickly that it's not a very good idea to, to borrow money to finance a campaign. In fact, it's a bad idea because when you lose, which happened to us, and it was a very hard loss, you know, losing is part of this game. And sometimes you learn more from losses than you learn from wins. Okay. Yep. But in, in that first campaign, we learned a lot. One was that you have to be prepared financially and you have to be prepared with enough people to manage the job. We ended up with a lot of debt and all that debt need to be paid off. And we had to raise enough when she decided she was going to stay in. The whole big decision that she and I had to get to, which was, it was her decision, but of course I was kind of in there supporting her. How were we going to make that money? So this is how I got into fundraising. To this point, I'd never done fundraising before, really in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and so this became um, one of the things that I had to do. So I, I want to let you know that so people and money were part of the things that I was doing in every campaign cycle, okay? And still doing that today in campaign cycles. So that's how, that's how I think it was Nicole who um, called me the first time, uh, Nicole DeCourt. Um, and um, she, because she was part of the, I think the committee at the time, the volunteer committee that was looking at um, how do we help writings, okay? And so they wanted a person who'd actually done it in writings to come and help other writings. So she'd said, you know, would you consider coming along? And I said, well, listen, I don't really want a job, but I'm prepared to come on, uh, you know, in some kind of a contract way, okay? So then we had a little bit of debate about what the role was going to be called and what I was actually going to do because I'm a person who believes that you got to teach people how to fish. What did we do? What did I do in that role? There were a, quite a number of things that I did. Okay. So with those 103 and 108 writings, whatever the heck we had at the time, part of the thing was just day-to-day -day assistance to writing association presidents and chairs and writing associations themselves, how to fundraise. Okay. So it was just sort of on the ground, helping them fundraise. But my goal and our goal always was to build capacity in fundraising. So it's not just, an, you know, the objective was not to do it for them. The objective was to try to teach a strategy, to try to teach by example, to try to teach as a group. And so I spent a lot of time around kitchen tables, wherever they were meeting, all over the province. Uh, I was driving around, meeting in people's kitchens, meeting in their living rooms. Uh, and it was the best part of my job. I loved it. I just loved it. I loved being with people who cared, people who were local, who wanted to make a difference. Um, and so that was part, part of it day to day. The other thing um, that uh, I was asked to do was to build, well, let me just speak to writings one more time. The other thing that Laura Miller gave me was she said, listen, Anna, you're going to support all the writings, but we're going to give you our top 10. These top 10, these writings, if we don't win them, we can't win a majority. And she said they're in bad shape. And, you know, some of them had negative bank accounts. All right. And so the question was, how can we help these writings in the next couple years win? I was supporting everybody, but I was also, I had a micro focus on 10 writings 
that the party really needed to win. And that meant we had to get in, we had to help them build enough people, money, structure, et cetera. The third thing that I did in the role was, and this is Laura, she was kind of ahead of her time. She wanted a toolkit. So she wanted a web-based kit, toolkit, where writings could just go and get resources. And so we did, we developed a toolkit where there was all sorts of resources for people, whether it was, you know, understanding what the rules were, whether it was, you know, some of the financial stuff, whether it was actually strategies for fundraising, whether it was webinars that had been pre-recorded or training, all those things were there. I have to say though, that I think it was a little ahead of its time for some of the writings. You know, what I found was, you know, you would say, well, there's stuff on the toolkit. And they said, yeah, yeah, Anna, but can you just tell me, can you just, can you just send me something? And so um, I still recognize that fundamentally people learn best from other examples and stories of people who've been successful. And so I just became sort of the best practice sharing person. So whether it was in webinars and I would just put people on and say, tell me what you guys are doing. Let's talk about the great strategies, what's working, what didn't. And so um, that was part of my role as well. So the toolkit. Another thing that we recognized was that there was a shift in fundraising going on. And um, very little of our party coffers were being supported by our monthly donations. So we had a monthly donor program, but it didn't have a lot of uptake. Um, We knew that a transition was happening to individual donors. So even pamphlets in an election, that's considered direct mail. Okay. Now, um, direct mail is still a very important channel for fundraising um, at the party, uh, as well as at writing level. Um, people who like to donate by receiving something in paper form like to donate by receiving something in paper form. Um, it's not the only way. And of course, Teresa, you and I um, had been working on as well the email strategy. And, right. um, you know, you, you spent a lot of time at that. Um, so we spent a lot of time trying to identify, to target, to um, work on our data, to make sure that we were sending out things to the right folks. Um, I had the the pleasure to do the first liberal survey of um, donors and volunteers. And it was one of the single most, um, the best funding um, direct mail that we did in terms of success. Um, So that was great. I mean, I loved writing uh, direct mail appeals and um, it was a very creative process and very fun. So I, you know, I had, I had uh, some opportunity at that as well. So, so that's kind of what the role entailed, Teresa, but, the best part was meeting in people's kitchens and uh, helping really great people try to get elected. Well, I want to talk a bit more about those people because we've already touched on how, you know, there's over 100 riding associations. I think at the time it was 107, but they, we've changed it so many times over the last decade. I can't remember anymore, but I think it was 107. And the thing about all these different ridings is that they're located in different corners of the province. There's very different people who live there. The local industry is different. So there's mm-hmm. no two ridings that are exactly the same. So when mm-hmm. it comes down to fundraising, we obviously have you know key things that we do that work on a fundraising level, but how do you make that adjustment? And what was the advice to riding associations based on you know their local community that had a very specific flavor to it? So that is the great thing about politics is that every community, every riding association, every candidate, Um, all bring sort of that secret sauce, that unique thing to the table. If I could, Trace, I just want to take a step back to talk a little bit about, because, you know, I think some of these basics I would have said to every writing association, because then I want to talk about 
um, sort of specific writings. You know, I think it's important as political people, we think about our end in mind always. So, so I always say, okay, what's the end in mind? Why do, why are we, why is the writing association exist? What are we doing here? So writing associations exist to elect liberals in, in our case. Okay. So I'm talking to, you know, my experience. Okay. So in this case, um, these writing associations are there to elect liberals. So, so what's involved in actually electing liberals? Well, I kind of like keeping things simple. So I think, you know, it really is three things. You need people, you need money, and you need to have a voter outreach strategy. And there's a strategies, multiple ways of reaching voters. Okay. And so I would say to all writings, okay, we need to own what the end in mind is. And we got to keep in mind people, because without people, you're not going to get to the doors. You're not going to get to the phones. You're not going to get your signs up. All of those things. You can't do the engagement without people. Money. People have weird ideas about money, but money is just a medium. Okay. It just, you know, if you're a good person and you're doing good things, money's doing good things for good reasons. Okay. And money in campaigns means direct voter outreach. And in fact, it's the single most important factor many times in winning or losing is how many voters can you reach? Okay. And so um, I know lots of people have discomfort around money, but I have to tell you that if you're trying to do good things and in Ontario, dear Lord, we need to be doing good things, you know, um, people and money outreach. Okay. So then in terms of fundraising itself, I kind of split. And when I'm talking to writings, there's kind of two sides to it. There's the process, which is how do you actually go about fundraising? And I think it's a very similar process to how you go about doing all sorts of things. You need a team, you need a goal, and you need a plan. Okay. And this is where sort of the unique opportunity comes for writings across the province because everybody's team is going to be different. Every riding is going to be different, but you want to put together a fundraising team of people who are prepared to work, people who represent your riding. So you want to have your businesses, your social organizations, your community organizations. You want to have as wide a breadth in that fundraising team as you can of people who are prepared to support your riding and ultimately to support your candidate. Okay. So you need a team then that team's got to sit about and they got to decide what our goal is going to be. And ideally the goal should be aligned with what you think you're going to spend in your next election cycle. Right. That, that tends and to help. <laughs> it does tend to help. Um, but remember, um, you might want some pre-election activity as well. So you might want some pre-writ or pre-election spending, and then you want to have to be fully funded for your election. Now, I realize there's lots of writings where that might not be, people might not think that's reasonable, okay? But I always encourage writings and encourage writings to be brave, be bold, um, set a, a really aggressive, assertive goal, okay? Because it gets you thinking out of the box. It gets you thinking about doing different things than you've done before. And I had writings where, I would say, they'd say, well, you know, we think we can raise 10,000. And I said, well, that's great. I think you can raise 50. And you know, like the, ah, what? And, um, but I said, listen, 
if you guys can't believe it, do you believe that I believe you can do it? And they said, oh yeah, we believe you believe we can do it, but we don't believe we can do it. I said, well, can you believe in my belief enough? <laughs> okay, so just believe me, okay, uh, that you guys can do this. And, and the way you do that is by putting a proper plan together, okay? And this is nothing more than like an Excel spreadsheet that talks about here are the strategies that we're gonna do, okay? You know, we're gonna do this event and I'll talk about that in a little bit in terms of if we get an opportunity to talk about the kinds of things people be could doing. But team goal plan is process. So that that is a side that I talk to all writings about, okay? The other side of the of the situation with fundraising is to talk about some of the keys of successful fundraising or some of these underpinning beliefs about fundraising. So the first one, that I always remind people, because everybody thinks that money and fundraising is kind of a little bit like, and I remind people that fundraising is a give, not a get. Okay, so what I mean by that is that people think, oh, I gotta get this money, I gotta get this money. That's kind of slimy. It's about people offering, people want to help, people want to give. So if they connect emotionally to your party, to your candidate, to your writing, to the things that you're going to be doing, those people want to offer their help. So fundraising is a give. That's the first thing I want to remind people. The second thing is that people give for their own reasons. They don't give for hours. So I remind people, if you're going to write a letter or a direct mail or even an email thing, you've got to help people find their own emotional reasons in that letter to get connected in that message to get connected, okay? Um, the other basic tenet of fundraising is if you don't ask, you don't get. It, this, this is about a lot in life, okay? <laughs> you can't sit That's around true. waiting for it to la land in your lap. This is not the way it works um, with life or with fundraising. Um, <laughs> you know, the thing is that, and I always say, be courageous with the ask, okay? Ask for more than you think you might want to ask for because you certainly won't get more than what you ask for. The other thing just about fundraising in general is that there's no right or wrong way to fundraise. Okay, so this comes back to your question, Teresa, which is every writing's different. And so I'm all for everybody cooking up their own plans. You wanna hold a beer tasting thing? Go ahead. You wanna hold um, an environmental fundraiser? Go ahead. You wanna have a high tea? You want to have a special luncheon, you want to have a breakfast meeting, you want to have a summer fiesta, whatever the ideas are, okay? Um, I, I think if people get caught up in thinking there's one right way to do anything, we're all in trouble. Creativity, the spirit of people working together to come up with great ideas that are going to be fun, that are going to be engaging, and that, you know, I think, you know, the other thing is to remember that back to the idea of people donate for their own reasons, is if you give people lots of different ways to engage giving money, okay? So there's some people, Teresa, as you know, they'll answer a letter, a fundraising letter, and they'll send a check. And there's other people who will never open the letter. They're going to put that in the garbage. But they might, if you called <laughs> them up and said, hey, would you come to high tea? They might come. You know, um, I say, have a little fun, be creative, um, whatever your writing is, um, you know, you can find some strategies that are going to work. It's really funny you bring that up about the direct mail because as many pieces of direct mail as I've written, I will never ever 
donate by direct mail myself. Um, it works for a very specific group of person, but I am the person who wants to get an email, click on it, automatically donate through the site and be done with it. Like I don't want to go through this whole mailing process. I don't have to walk to a box. So it really is about people's individual feelings about it. And even on direct mail, like we always say, when you're designing direct mail, it has to be catchy enough that by the time the person walks to the recycle bin, they're reading it and not tossing it in. So, you know, everybody is a little different and, and different things move people. And the biggest thing with fundraising, I think, is, you know, trial and error. You have to keep testing things. Yeah. And, you know, certainly uh, with email marketing, especially you need to do trial yes. and error. Um, but even in terms of, um, in terms of trying a variety of strategies. Okay. Like I always prefer, like when I do a fundraising plan with a writing, because don't forget fundraising is not just about raising money. It's about building your team. It's about having some fun. It's about trying to make people give people opportunities to contribute in event management. Um, so, so, um, I always make sure that in a plan, you've got a variety of things. You've got the candidate asks, you've got, you've got some direct mail, you've got an email campaign, but you might have few different events, maybe a higher value event, a mid cocktail fundraiser, a fun little summer fiesta for, you know, at the hundred dollar level. So I like to mix it up. I want to talk a little bit just briefly about the push and pull between local fundraising and central campaign fundraising. So a central campaign you know, in the provincial politics will raise maybe $10 million. I think federally, they tend to go for about 18, $20 million um, to spend on a campaign. And the problem with fundraising when you're fundraising for a political party is your local donors are also your national or provincial donors. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's a bit of a push and pull between, well, those are our donors. So we're going to talk to them. So can you please just not, you know, try and tap into them? What was that like, you know, in the lead up to the campaigns that you worked on and, and how do you sort of navigate that relationship? <laughs> well, you know, having just been through um, a provincial election um, where I was a campaign manager, um, I can tell you that because, uh, you know, it's not just the tension between central and local. It's also the tension, the tension between federal and provincial. Yes. OK. Yes. And so you've kind of got four elements going on all the time. You've got central, federal, local, federal, central, fed, central, provincial, local, provincial. And what people in both upper parties forget is that local liberals are generally local liberals. Okay, so I'm not going to say that there aren't people who don't cross over, but in many cases, people who are involved provincially are also involved federally when it comes to campaign teams and volunteers and riding associations. So I won't get into well, the heated discussion I had with the federal party about this past election <laughs> when they kept sending me requests for money and kept, you know, kept sending me requests for volunteering. And I said, I'm running a provincial campaign. Okay. Um, so I, I uh, personally understand this tension and certainly um, lots of writings mention it. So I, I think one of the things I want to say is that back to the monthly donor thing again, I think when we have win-win fundraising, which is where, for example, um, people are donating monthly to the party and to the writing together each month, Okay, that reinforces the fact that we're mutually dependent and interdependent, okay, uh, in towards success. So when people are donating to the party and to the riding, and they do that together monthly, that strengthens the bond and the understanding in the mind of each liberal in this province that both 
the central party and the riding have to be healthy. So I say I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that and looking for more opportunities where riding and party can fundraise uh, together. But I do think though, that central parties should give it some thought about how they work together and potentially don't get in each other's space. And also um, to try to be mindful of uh, ridings when they are especially in a roll up to a campaign period that they're being mindful of how many times can we touch a donor. So I, th I, I think there's room for improvement on that, but I also say ridings just keep going. I agree. I mean, they have, they have the local relationship with, with, you know, the supporter. So it's always good mm -hmm. to just go out and do it. I think, you know, one of the, one of the ideas that I really like that the Peel region MPPs used to do was they would fundraise as a unit. So they would hold the fundraiser all together so that they wouldn't be stepping on each other's toes. I know in this this most recent election, that was part of the problem in, you know, geographically close uh, areas where ridings just are pulling from the same people because they're like, well, we're all from Mississauga. So like, what does that mean when it's four different ridings, you know? So it's the same thing in York region, a lot of times in Toronto, it's a lot of the same overlapping people who may be in different ridings, but you know, conceptually in their heads, they're all from Toronto or Mississauga or whatever it is. So there's a lot of overlap that happens, but I think, I think to your point about trying to negotiate between the different groups to make sure at the end of the day, the supporter, the donor is not exhausted because an exhausted donor mm -hmm. does not give money. <laughs> and I think, you know, making sure burnout doesn't happen on that front and that appreciation is still the most important thing to everybody involved doing this soliciting, um, that, that is crucial because there's nothing, <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to anger a supporter and a donor and prevent them from donating. But what you really don't want to do is in that effort, prevent them from voting for you. <laughs> like that is the absolute nightmare. So making sure that you're actually, you know, thinking about how much mail they might be receiving, you know, if you're doing 15 emails during a campaign period, and then the provincial arm, the central campaign yes. is doing yes. the same. Well, they're doing at least 30. I can tell you that <laughs> if they're doing at least 30, you're doing 15 and then the feds are dropping in there and then maybe some neighboring writings have gotten these people's emails as well. That's just a lot of content. And to them, it's all just liberal. So it doesn't actually differentiate at all. And they're like, why are you harassing me? So, you know, trying right. to figure out those things to make sure that we're not, it's all the same donor. So <laughs> making sure we're not That's burning right. out that donor is, is crucial. And, and, you know, this speaks to uh, relationship. This is why sort of electronic um, appeals, while they work and they can be very effective, we have to watch because um, this really is about an extension of a relationship. All fundraising is really um, an extension of help to somebody for something. You know, it's kind of a long shot third because it's through that development, Teresa, of the relationship, the trust, the the engagement the appreciation i mean that's one thing i haven't talked about but one of the tenets of fundraising is that um a thanked donor is a happy donor and um a, a speedily thanked donor it's like you know when you go to a wedding and somebody sends you the thank you note the next week and it's handwritten and it mentions the gift you gave and you think oh my god they're so great and then you have others where you receive the thank you note a year and a half later and it's you know got a fake signature on it you know in fake ink so i say to myself okay and so the same thing is true but when we fundraise because it is a relationship 
someone has put their trust in you, um, either as an association, as a leader, as a as a, a, a candidate. And so the extension of that is to make sure we don't take ever give a sense that we're taking that for granted because it's a precious thing. And so personal thank you notes, thanking people right away, picking up the phone, um, making that donor feel that they're connected with you, that what they've done is important, that you connect with um, how the money has been used and how effectively that money has made a difference in the campaign towards the end that the donor was interested yes. in. All of those things matter. The other thing I would say too is understanding the value of a dollar given to you know, your campaign to the party, whatever it is, mm. that dollar as part of your larger pot for your campaign, say you're mm -hmm. raising, you know, 50,000, $100,000 for your local campaign, or you're mm. the central campaign. And again, you're raising $10 million, $1, $50 doesn't seem like a lot, but for that person, it might be, you know, mm. their disposable income for the month. It could be, yes. you know, income they don't even really have to dispose, but they really want to make sure that their vision for the government of Ontario is going to happen. So they're doing literally everything they can to make that happen. So, you know, sometimes I think we can get a bit dismissive because we're trying to think of the bigger picture and how much we need to raise overall. But those dollars matter to people. They're money that they're choosing not to spend on their family, on themselves, and that they're choosing to spend on their belief in the party and what it can achieve yes. for them in government. So it is it is a really emotional, personal thing. And we need to treat it like that when we're fundraising. And just going back to the, the quick thank yous, they are very appreciated. Up until this campaign, I don't think I'd ever gotten a thank you for a donation. And then I made a donation to, I'm going to give her a shout out, Jill Promoli, who was running in Mississauga. And within a few hours of making the donation, she called me up on the phone and thanked me. Okay. So <laughs> was, what, how did that, how did that make you feel when she did that? I felt great because I literally had, you know, over 15 years of not having that experience. So not only was it a great experience individually, but, you know, contrasted to my entire history and political life, it was great. <laughs> You know, uh, Teresa, this is the thing, you know, uh, when we did Helena's fundraisers, um, we used to do um, photos from the event, put them on these little cards, and then we would write thank you notes, personal thank you notes to the people who came. They weren't fancy cards, um, but they they made the difference because they were personalized and um, handwritten. So um, thanking people and connecting with people is essential. So yeah. while we were working together, you had, you know, sort of mentioned this earlier, there was going to be a switch to individualized giving from corporate giving. And, mm -hmm. you know, we fully, you and I fully believe that was going to happen. There's a lot of naysayers who said we would never be crazy enough to introduce legislation that would get rid of corporate giving because it funded campaigns in a much easier way than trying to go to individual people and, and fundraise campaigns that way. So we were proven right, of course, and <laughs> the legislation was eventually passed. It had happened first federally. And then, you know, once people, once the voters see that kind of accountability brought in, they're going to want it in other jurisdictions. So we brought it in provincially. And the point of getting rid of corporate donations and capping individual giving, uh, individual donation limits was to make sure that donors with money didn't, they couldn't purchase greater influence in the political mm -hmm. system. 
-hmm. and it was making sure, you know, because some people, again, just have that $20 to give for an entire four-year cycle, and some people have, you know, $35,000 to give, and we want to make sure they have the same level of influence in government. So it put a greater focus, though, on local fundraising to fill the gaps that Mm -hmm. corporate fundraisers maybe had once done. So, you know, provincially, the liberals used to hold a dinner called Heritage Dinner, which would raise $2 Mm -hmm. million in one night. That was Mm -hmm. out the window without corporate giving. So we have to move on to figuring out really strong local fundraising tactics to fund campaigns. So can you talk about some of the sort of tried and true tactics that you've taught writing associations that you've used yourself that are, you know, incredibly effective in today's individual giving uh, climate? Um, There are some types of fundraisers that are harder to do because sponsorship isn't allowed. Okay. So for example, golf tournaments who were golf tournaments are never easy to run anyway. Okay. Because they're high, (laughs) They're high cost events, okay? So back to the value that you give a donor. So, so you know, the donor's looking for the tax receipt, right? So if you hold, let's say you hold an event and it costs you $200 to run and you charge the person 250, okay? If, if there's $200 of value, you have to take that off. They only get a tax receipt for 50 and you only get $50 right. in your pocket. Okay, right. so that is not, that is the other thing that I try to get across to ridings is you want to get the best bang for your buck in terms of your fundraising strategies, keeping in mind your end in mind, okay, because it's not just about money, you also want to have events because you want to build momentum, you want to build your team, part of that is also having events. Um, so in terms of tried and true tactics, um, there are so many creative ways, we've already talked about monthly giving. So um, I would say that the, the, the standard, the gold standard in political fundraising is the cocktail fundraiser. Um, and, you know, cocktail fundraisers are just the gem. They're a two-hour thing. Uh, you prick a price point and any variety of price point is, is allowed, um, you know. And again, I've never been a big lover of high value events i think they start to get a bit weird and people think they're buying influence so i i've never been a big fan okay that said i'm going to talk about a couple things that are good things if you've got people who want to give a little bit more money we've got a couple other ideas so so cocktail fundraisers the sweet spot kind of that 250 to 500 dollar range you could even go lower you can go 100 it depends on where you do the cocktail fundraiser Okay, so, you know, if you go to the most beautiful hotel in town to have your cocktail fundraiser and you spend $100 in cost with food and alcohol, okay, you're not going to get your best bang for the buck. So, you know, I've always encouraged people to do cocktail fundraisers in people's houses, do them in, you know, um, other locations so that you can try to minimize your costs. Again, it's like any other kind of thing you're doing when you're you're trying to be mindful. You want to give good value to people. So you want to give them fun. You want to give them food. Um, you may or may not want to give them alcohol. Um, but, you know, uh, like I'm kind of a wine, beer kind of girl at most of these things. I, I'm, I'm not really an alcohol person in terms of most of these events. Although, you know, there have been some people who've done alcohol tastings as, as fundraisers too. So cocktail fundraisers, the best thing going really good. Just try to keep your costs down. Very simple. Okay. Um, and in terms of those kinds of events, um, you can run event on all sorts of themes. So you can run events on themes that are related to policy. Okay. So you can get a great guest speaker on the environment, on healthcare, on, uh, public education, on all the things that matter to people. 
they tend to have a little different, um, a little different bent towards them. And so, you know, you're going to be, um, you'll have a general appeal and then you may have sort of a specific appeal when you're actually talking to try to um, figure out who you're going to invite. Um, so special themed events. Um, of course, we talked about direct mail letters. Okay. We talked about email um, appeals. Um, you know, we've had successful small dinners. So here's a nice thing that if you've got some people who really want to support the candidate and some people who are capable and who would like to donate more money, let's say in the $1,000, $1,500 range, okay, um, or beyond, a, a nice dinner at a beautiful restaurant, okay, is a nice thing to do. And we've done that and it's been very well received. And oftentimes you will have um, a guest speaker um, or you may have just the candidate or, you know, so again, um, beautiful and they can be done so nicely. Then we've got all sorts of events that are kind of in the sort of, um, I would say in the hundred dollar range, sort of between 50 and a hundred dollars. And these are kind of things that are great for building, riding, um, you know, and again, you got to keep the cost down. So you're going to try to get uh, people who want to individually donate food or wine or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, do a corn roast, do a summer fiesta, do a barbecue, all of those things can, as long as you keep your costs down, you can still make 40 or $50, maybe 60, $70 a pop. And that can be a very effective thing. If you get a hundred dollars, a hundred people there, you're going to make 7,000 bucks, right? So, um, there's lots of different ideas. Um, the one I do want to speak to is just the direct ask. One of the things that I had to do, especially as we were in the candidate ramp up period, was I spent a lot of time with candidates themselves as they were starting to think about running and talk to them individually about their fundraising plans because candidates have a special role in fundraising. And that is that not only might they want to participate and sell tickets to events and things, but most of the time we ask them so we have them go through an activity and I have the writing do this too, for that matter, is to map out your networks. So I start with a candidate and I say, okay, let's map your networks. Who are the people that know you, love you, work with you, play with you, um, in all aspects of your life, let's map that out. Okay. Because the circle of influence starts from the center. It starts from the center of the candidate out. Same thing with the writing association, start from the center. And so what you want to do is, you know, for candidates is they've got to get their list of a hundred or their list of whatever. Okay. And, um, this is one of the things that, you know, has been very difficult for some people, especially if you're transitioning, you've never been involved in politics before and you're transitioning, let's say, um, from a professional life and helping people get to the point where it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to say, Hey, you know, I know we haven't talked in a while, but I want to tell you, I've done this crazy thing. I'm now involved politically and here's why I'm doing it. And oh my God, like, I know it's crazy, but you know, I'm calling you today because I really wanted to ask for your help. Would you help support me? And could you give me some time? And, you know, and, and would you consider sending me a check? So again, um, those are the kinds of things that I spent a lot of time with because I believe that, you know, we had one guy, do you remember Ken Schmidt from Essex? Yes. Okay. Yes. So Ken Schmidt. Okay. So he was like, uh, the model of the person who could do this in an unheld riding, no less. Okay. He decided when he was going to run. 
So he gave the full amount, which I think was like about 1500 bucks at the time. I forget what it was, maybe 12 something, whatever. And so he called everybody in his list. He said, okay, I donated 1250 to my campaign. Would you match me? He raised $40,000 in like Ooh. less than two or three weeks. One of the things that really is important for candidates is that they own part of that. So they have to donate to them. They have to donate to their own campaign. They have to donate to their writing association. I feel the same way about PLAs. I feel that within everybody's financial ability, if you can donate 10 bucks, you donate 10 bucks. If you can donate 50, if you can donate a hundred, you do what you can because then you have credibility. This right? is something you've talked about a lot in, in all the time we've known each other, which is don't throw a fundraiser that you aren't donating to yourself. If you don't believe in your event, no one else is going to. And it's something that you've brought up over and over and over again. And <laughs> I think I think it's a really important note for candidates because there are a number of candidates who never donate to their own campaign. And I get it. There's lots of expenses going on. It's a really tough time. Sometimes you have to take time off from work. Um, but it's much easier to make that ask if you've already done it yourself. And Ken's example is great, which is, I've done this. Will you match me? Like a matching argument is so strong and no wonder he raised $40,000 on it. So this actually makes me want to pivot into uh, a question about the Ontario Women's Liberal Commission. So mm. they are the organization tasked with helping to elect women who are running as liberal candidates. Uh, first and through the fund, the Margaret Campbell Fund, they actually mm -hmm. fundraise specifically for first time candidates who are women. This is like crucial again for getting candidates supported in their first time out making sure as you've talked about their first campaign doesn't leave them with debt afterwards it's really really important for their success but also for them being able to run again later on uh, you've had a big role in helping mm -hmm. that organization raise money for these candidates so what it, what it the fund does it basically spends four years in between campaigns raising money and then divides it up equally across all the first time female candidates who run uh, can you talk about what are some of the extra challenges women face when it comes to fundraising? And then what are some of the ways they and their teams can overcome that? Uh, yeah, I have been a big supporter of the Ontario Women's Liberal Commission. And um, in my role when I was at the party, I helped that organization with their fundraising. I just want to make a point about the way we did that. And we did this for many large events, which was... Um, you know, the Ontario Women's Liberal Commission has a lot of women who are on the commission, okay, who are on their board. And then they have a lot of supporters of people, women and men, um, who care about this organization. And so every time um, we started an event, we would recruit an event committee. And this is an excellent strategy, no matter what event you're doing, we'd recruit an event committee. And everybody on the committee would have their names on the invitation everybody knew that they were signing up to sell five or 10 or whatever it was that we agreed to that people were going to try to sell the tickets for the event. So everybody had a piece of that and they owned a piece of that. Most fundraisers for events uh, in Canada and around the world wouldn't happen without amazing women running them. Okay. So women are excellent fundraisers. I think though the difference is maybe, and I've thought about this a little bit is, is the way we use our networks. So women, um, and, and again, I think women in business are doing this more too, the way men have always done, but use, utilize their networks for advancement, for career development, for um, mutual assistance. Okay, so women do this in lots of cases. We, we do it for uh, support. Uh, we, do it, we do it for our professions as well. But the question is, how do we choose to use networks? 
And I think for many women who are starting, and certainly this has been my experience working with many women candidates, is the challenge to see that it's okay to approach these networks and ask for help. So, so uh, you know, because especially when it comes to fundraising, okay, but also just help for your campaign. Um, people think and candidates think that they're asking for money for themselves. I say, well, you're not really asking money for yourself. You're asking money for a bigger mission here. You've signed up to be a representative um, of a party who has a mission about the kind of Ontario we want to create. And exactly. so you're asking people to buy into that bigger mission. Now, they, you want them to buy into you too, obviously. I mean, clearly, if you've worked with that person and that person respects you and you have a relationship, they're going to love you and help you. Okay. But the challenge is in sort of in our own minds sometimes is in the belief system that says it's okay to ask for help, to ask for somebody to help as a volunteer. And it's also okay to ask somebody for help financially to run an effective campaign to do the mission that we're all collectively working towards. And so I think sometimes it's a mindset about how we use our own networks. Okay. But women are very effective fundraisers. What do you think about, you know, there's that saying, and I've, I've brought it up in previous episodes of this podcast, where men get, in, they run for office to be someone and women run for office to do something. And mm -hmm. I wonder if that is part of the hangup some women have about fundraising. You were just talking about it a bit about the why is the broader, you know, provincial product project that we're doing. But for women, sometimes it's, oh, I'm asking for myself now. I've heard this from so many women candidates where they're like, oh, I had no problem fundraising for other people. But as soon as it's my name on the ballot, like, oh, I just feel mm -hmm. gross. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that is, um, you know, I've heard it a lot. And so it's kind of um, helping sometimes candidates get out of their own way in their heads about some of this stuff. So again, everybody's unique about how that process unfolds. Some people just get on with it. Okay. Um, I do believe though that having a script, like I'm a big believer that um, again, it's about connection. So if you were going to tell somebody why you're doing something, you call somebody up and, you know, there's some secrets to a good call. The first call is to tell people why you're calling, you know, Hey, I know we haven't talked in a while and I want to catch up. Um, but I'm calling today cause I want to ask for your help for something. Okay. So you right up front, don't talk to somebody for 10 minutes and then slip it in. That's bad. Okay. You want to be right up front. You want to ask for what you want. And then you want to tell people, hey, I've made this crazy decision or I've made this great decision and here's why I'm doing it. I do think that a lot of it has to do with framing. It has to do with um, thinking about ourselves in a different way that it isn't really about you as the candidate. It is somewhat, but it's not really about you being elected. It's about that bigger picture about what you're going to do. To your point, what I'm going to do or who I'm going to help. I think, I think that no is also a really helpful thing in fundraising because actually the worst answer you can get is not no it's no answer and then you just continue <laughs> to waste your time trying to get money from that source so a no is sometimes you know not as good as a yes but sometimes is useful for your time <laughs> <laughs> totally totally <laughs> okay so we are we are running super long so i'm gonna skip ahead to my last question here um you know just given all your involvement with the owlc with female candidates with riding associations, with fundraising, with just politics in general, all the stuff that you've done over the last few years. I'm wondering, you know, as we sort of think towards the future and generational change and all this kind of stuff, 
what advice would you give to other women, especially young women, about volunteering and working in politics today? Okay, well, this isn't advice, um, but this is a statement. We need you. <laughs> yes, Please. Yes. Okay. We have a lot to do. We have a lot of important work to do in this province, in this country. We're all aware that there are forces at play that are trying to diminish and destroy our democracy. And I don't think I'm being too heavy handed. This is what's really going on here. And, and you know, we need great, positive, intelligent, thoughtful, kind, considerate, shall I go on? We need great people, great women to get involved at whatever level, at whatever level you can get involved. And that means community level, municipal level, school board, provincial, federal, um, even in terms of associated organizations, we need you. And, you know, in terms of advice, I think, you know, accomplished women are just that, accomplished women. And this is really not age-related at all. There are very accomplished 12, 15, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 70-year-olds, 90-year-olds. I mean, look at Hazel McCallion. She's still contributing. I, I do think, though, that to, to take the step to, um, to get in, if you care about something deeply, get in and just start to work. And then uh, there will be logical advancement that will come out of that. And if you think, if there's this little thing in your mind that says, geez, I might like to be that one day, then talk to some of us who've been in the political world around a while. You know, there's a lot of people who worked in this last campaign uh, that I did with Jillian Vavona, a rock star candidate. Um, and, you know, we had men and women in that campaign who I've already said, listen, have you thought about it? Put your toe in. If you care, put your toe in. We have a lot of work to do and we need people who care and people who want to get to work. So I would say find, a, find an interest, find a way in. And, um, you know, Teresa and I will take your call anytime to talk about it. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I think that is an excellent note to end on, which is. The Persisters Can podcast is hosted and produced by Teresa Lubowitz. Our theme song, Trailblazer, was created by four-time Emmy-nominated composer, Guillaume. And our logo was created by Canadian graphic designer, Andrea Ledwell. Thanks for tuning in.